Ron Sudamonis. Okay, great. Yeah, it's uh, great to be here again. I was here two years ago for the, for the viral and bacterial evolution. And um, uh, I'm going to talk about my work in Pseudomonas originosa and how we can use it as a model system to understand microbial social traits. I think it's a great model system to uh, investigate these things in the lab. Just to put things into perspective, I'm just going to draw very quickly a diagram here on the, on the blackboard. Um, to explain where I see Pseudomonas originosa fitting within the grand scheme of things. So we have prokaryotic organisms. And uh, then we also have other levels of biological organization. We have eukaryotic single-celled organisms. And above that, we have multicellular eukaryotic organisms. And then even above that, we have the, the level of geosocial organisms, like the social insects. Well, I'm, I'm not a biologist from my background, I'm a chemical engineer, but I'm always fascinated by the biodiversity and you know, how does a natural selection lead to the evolution of these different levels of biological organization, which seemingly are ruled by a similar set of rules. Right? So we have uh, mutation, we have natural selection, and we have the other processes governing evolution, such as uh, uh, drift and migration. Uh, what, uh, to me, seems uh, extremely exciting is that in order to explain how we have these different levels of biological organization, we need to understand the evolution of cooperation at the level immediately below. So in order to have eukaryotes, you had to have prokaryotes that get associated into a unit of, of a biological organization that then gets selected for. Then the same thing for these different levels. You know, in order to have multicellular organisms, you have to have evolution of cooperation to, at the level of single-celled eukaryotes that get uh, uh, associated, and you have this differentiation between germline and somatic cell lines. And then the same thing in the social organisms, where you have you know colonies of uh, insects, where uh, you have uh, uh, a small fraction of the individuals the queens will uh, uh, reproduce, whereas you have all these other uh, division of labor that you have all sorts of other individuals that do not, they're in evolutionary dead ends. Now together with this, and of course, you know, immediately below this we have prebiotic evolution, which we don't know exactly what it was, but most likely involved um, uh, replicating molecules that then got associated into forming the first protocells and, and so on. Uh, so we have these, all these levels of biological organization, and we have evolution of cooperation to explain how you transition from one to the other. And at the same time, whenever you have a transition, you have the possibility to revert selection back to the level immediately below. You have, you have conflict happening at the level of individuals, right? So uh, you know, in these levels here, you have mitochondria can lead to, to uh, diseases at the level of, of single cells eukaryotic single cells. The same thing here when you think about this transition, you can have a multicellular organism but you have cancer which is uh, uh, conflict reverting back, levels of selection back to the level of in, uh, single cells. And of course there's a range of literature looking at the conflict of interest between uh, individual insects and, and the colonies, right? So there's this whole level uh, which actually led to the first uh, models of, of kin selection and, and so on. So, uh, you know, this here, you know, studying this interaction here is what's important to understand cancer. Uh, what I study in my lab is prokaryotic single cell organisms. We don't have any examples of, of um, uh, uh, obligatory uh, uh, multicellular prokaryotes. So I study how prokaryotic organisms can have group level behaviors, such as biofilm formation. 
uh, or collective motility, which is what I'll talk about here today, and ask whether these traits that we observe are their adaptive traits, right? So are there features in the life cycle of these uh, uh, single cell organisms that uh, uh, get selected for their properties at the, at the group level, okay? So this is where I'll be talking about uh, Pseudomonas originosa, which is not a multicellular organism and does not have examples of uh, differentiation between germline and somatic cell lines like uh, the, the uh, Volvox that we uh, saw yesterday. But uh, because uh, it does have features of multicellularity, it, I, I believe it's an optimal model system to understand this conflict of interest between the individual and, and the collective. Okay, so now I'll give an introduction from my own work. Uh, so Pseudomonas originosa, it's not only a, a great model system, it's also biomedically relevant, and this is what gives us money to keep uh, doing this research, so it's very convenient in the present uh, scheme of, of uh, science funding. So I, I think all of us should work <laughs> in Pseudomonas originosa, so it's a, a great system also because of practical uh, reasons. Uh, it infects uh, immunocompromised uh, individuals. It's very, it's very safe to work with because it, actually it's everywhere. It's an environmental microbe, but it's also an opportunistic human pathogen. So it infects immunocompromised uh, patients, most notoriously um, uh, cystic fibrosis patients. So it causes long-term uh, chronic lung infections. Uh, and it evolves in the process. So we're very interested also in understanding how this, uh, how this organism jumps from the environment to the host and what kind of evolutionary adaptations does it go through. Now in the lab, uh, we investigate this very cool behavior that's called swarming motility. So uh, this is a, a colony of Pseudomonas originosa. Uh, it's, a, it's a normal, uh, regular petri dish, nine centimeters wide. The bacteria, are, they are uh, rod-shaped, uh, one micrometer long, but together they can migrate over large distances. And I have here a time-lapse uh, showing, illustrating exactly how this happens. So it's a, a movie that I made when I was uh, a postdoc at, at Harvard. Uh, what I did here is I, I, I spotted bacteria at the, at the center of this petri dish, and you'll see at about five hours, you see these tendrils shooting out of, of the colony, and then migrate towards the edge of the plate. And there's branching along the way, uh, it is uh, a multicellular trait in the strictest definition of the word. The bacteria by themselves, as, as single cells, they cannot migrate on the surface. They need to uh, grow to large uh, enough numbers to secrete uh, lubricating uh, substances, uh, biosurfactants, to allow them to slide on top of the surface. It's a hard agar plate? It's soft agar. It's prepared at 0.5% uh, agar concentration. I'll, I'll go back to that uh, later on. Uh, it's quite a sophisticated trait from the point of view of the microorganism in the sense that uh, many genes have been identified to, to be necessary for these traits. Uh, just to give you another idea how sophisticated this is, I have here another time-lapse where I spotted two colonies of the same bacterium uh, in, the, in, the, in the same petri dish. You see the same tendrils moving away but they also repel each other. So there's also long range uh, repulsion acting here. And we, we think there's all sorts of very cool questions uh, in this microorganism. And the experiments are so simple that I really encourage uh, people to try this out. So what happens on hard agar? Uh, I will show that also later, okay? You said 2.5%? 0.5. 0.5, so this is soft, soft agar, right? So there's all sorts of very interesting questions, and I'll, I'll, I'll show how we're addressing some of them, right? And will you tell us eventually why the tips are white? Ah, uh, yeah, so the tips, I can say that right now. So the tips are actually denser 
uh, right? So there's many more bacteria at the tips, and they're and they're really moving along. Okay. So this is a trait that really uh, confers the colony a huge advantage, right? So if we prepare the colony and allow it to swarm, and then we scrape the cells off and count how many cells were in this colony, we get about 17 billion cells in that colony. Now, if you prepare the same nutrients, but you use hard agar, now it's at 1.5% concentration rather than 0.5, the colony cannot swarm, okay? And it stays restricted at the center, it depletes the nutrients around it, and then uh, you know reaches carrying capacity much earlier. So here, does that mean that it uses water from water to? It does. So so the reason it, it it's capable of swarming is that it produces these biosurfactants, remnolipids, that are amphiphilic molecules. They have both a, a sugar moiety and a lipid moiety, and once secreted out, they will recruit water from the agar. That will provide a, a thin film of moisture that will, will allow the colony to slide on top. Okay, so this is, um, actually I have a picture here. They're actually difficult to see because they're very translucent, but you see here the ring of biosurfactants uh, around the colony. Now, uh, if we uh, prepare uh, the other uh, soft other again, but now we use an isogenic mutant, Oxidomonas originosa. So we have here a mutant where we knocked out the flagella. Uh, we knocked out the gene FLAG-K. The bacteria can swarm, and again they make less cells, okay? If we knock out the ability to produce these biosurfactants by knocking out this gene RAL-A, again, the bacteria cannot swarm. Although they have a function of flagellum, they can't wet the surface, and they can't swarm, and again, they make less cells. Okay? Can you run the movie again? Because I noticed Roland just came in. Okay. Since he gave a talk yesterday on branching. I had him yesterday. Oh, yeah. Okay. He already does. Okay. I don't think his branches repelled each repelled them themselves. I have another model where they do. Oh, okay. Yeah, in the corals, they, they, they repel each other, right? Uh, so so, uh, so my, my first question when I started looking at this was, uh, you know, given that the bacteria, they secrete really massive amounts of isopactins. You can see it here. They travel many cell distances, uh, cell length distances away from the producing cell, right? And uh, uh, this should carry a, a metabolic cost to the cells. And, so, and so that the, the, you're using fluorescent uh, excitation to uh, visualize the biosurfactant? No, unfortunately it's nothing that sophisticated. So what I did here is that I tilted the, the plate okay. and, and sh you know, I was shining some light where you can see here. Oh, okay, but you see, you see it in between the branches, you're saying? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean it's also in between the branches. Okay. I mean it's very, very hard to take a good picture, but if you just tilt the, the, the plate you can really see it it's everywhere. How thick is that layer? Uh, it's very thin. It's less than a mile, than a millimeter. I, I don't know exactly how. how Many thick. molecules thick. I, I would imagine so, yeah. right? But uh, but not yeah. mono layer of any sort. I, I don't think so. Although I can't know for sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I see some texture, which I guess tells me that it's not a single molecule. Right. Uh, <clears throat> okay. But so the the, the the point that I wanted to address here is. Um, Supposedly, this is, a, this is a costly trait to individual cells. So the bacteria, they have to engage in the production of these massive amounts of, of substance. But then once secreted, they're going to benefit everyone within the population, potentially, right? So, so is there any mechanism preventing uh, spontaneous mutants, like this Rale mutant here, that would be a knockout, would not produce the biosurfactants, but still benefit from the biosurfactants produced by others? So basically, they would become free riders, right? Because if this is the case, then you expect these mutants 
to increasing frequency within the population and eventually take over the whole thing. So this would be uh, a simple example of, of, of cheating, right? So spontaneous cheaters would emerge within the population. But because we do see this trait in nature, that tells me that there has to be a mechanism to prevent these cheaters from arising within the population, okay? So my question is what prevents evolutionary cheating in the production of these bisurfactants? Okay, so actually I chose this model system because a lot was already known about the metabolic pathways that lead to the production of bisurfactants because these remnolipids, they're uh, biodegradable surfactants, so they actually have commercial value and chemical engineers during the 80s actually figured out a lot of the details. So there's a, a metabolic pathway that leads to the production of remnols, the uh, sugar moiety of remnolipids, then the pathway that leads to the production of, of the lipid moiety of remnolipids, and then, and then there are these three enzymes, RAL-A, RAL-B, and RAL-C that are critical. RAL-A is, is critical because it's the, actually the rate-limiting step is the expression of this enzyme here. Once this, express, uh, this enzyme is expressed, the bacteria is committed to produce factors. So we believe that the decision-making mechanism is here, right? So if a bacteria expresses this, it makes the decision to engage in the production of these public goods, okay? And so there's RAL-A, then RAL-B adds one remnose unit to the remnolipids, and RAL-C adds a second remnose unit, and what gets secreted is actually a mixture of these three substances. The lipid moiety, and then the monoremnolipids, and the diremnolipids. So it's a mixture of biosurfactants that the bacteria secrete out. Do you know why the sugar has to be on the end of the lipid to make a slick surface? No. By itself might be enough, no? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, if we knock out RAL-B and RAL-C, the bacteria still swarm away. The, the branches don't look exactly the same, but they're still capable of sliding. Yeah, so supposedly this, this could be enough. Uh, we don't know for sure what, what is the function of this. Actually, we don't know uh, what are the, all, all the functions of remnolipids in nature. Uh, we know that they can use it uh, uh, to slide on, on soft surfaces, but we also know that we, they can use it to uh, disrupt eukaryotic cells. So it could be a way to, to, to kill eukaryotic cells. Okay. Okay. So then, you know, because all of this was already figured out, all we had to do to make synthesize a cheater, cheater in the lab is to knock out this gene here, the gene that encodes for this enzyme. So we take a wild type bacteria, we knock out RAL-A, and we get a, a cheater that we construct in the lab. Okay. Now another thing that we can do is we can label the bacteria with different fluorescent markers, so we can tell which one is which, right? So we have here a control experiment where we labeled the wild type in green, green fluorescent protein, the wild type in red using a DS-red express protein, and here it's a mixture where I mixed the green wild type with the red wild type and watched them swarm away, and this is just to say that in this case they mix completely, right? So unlike in David Nelson's nice sectors, here you have complete mixture. And this is because if you look at the bacteria as, as they swarm, it's, they're actually mixing in, in, in large uh, length scales, right? Okay, but this is just a control experiment just to show that we're capable of counting, right? So then uh, we can count how many green cells we had here, how many red cells we had here, how many green and red we had there, and that gives us a tool to compete bacteria in a petri dish just like if it is a fighting arena, okay? There seems to be a slight spatial segregation of green being denser towards the tips. Uh, well, there's, there's not. Uh, I mean, if, if we scoop it out and we count how many green and red we have, there's no difference. Uh, so, so we have no evidence so far of any uh, segregation, uh, sector-like segregation. 
There is, you know, if you use different genotypes, then you can have segregation. You, okay. You're counting with a fax machine, or how do you? No, actually, this is just a, a colony forming units, so very oh, conditional macro. Old fashioned way, you spread yeah. them out. Yeah. You count the number of yeah, and the reason for this is, is, is purely practical. It's that the, the fluorescent markers that we use, they're a single copy of the gene inserted into the genome, and they're expressed at a, a low level. So they don't, we have good confidence that they don't affect the fitness of the bacteria, but the downside is that they're not very bright, so we cannot use a, a full cytometry, unfortunately. So we have to do it the hard way. <laughs> My students hate it. counting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay. So, so next I'm going to show again a, a time lapse, but um, uh, I'm going to place in the same petri dish uh, the wild type and the uh, raw lay mutant, the mutant that does not produce bisurfactants. Okay? <coughs> okay, so we have these two spots. This is the mutant, this is the wild type. The wild type is capable of swarming uh, as before. The mutant doesn't produce bisurfactants, so it can't swarm. But when it gets in contact with the wild type, it regains the ability to swarm because it's using the, the, the bisurfactants of the wild type. And here, I had previously labeled the two bacteria with different fluorescent markers that we could indeed confirm that the, that the mutant is swarming along. Okay? Why they didn't repel? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So they didn't repel because actually the repulsant is in the bisurfactants itself. It's one of the, those, those components of the bisurfactants. Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, I didn't include that movie, but there's an, another movie where we, we uh, you do the same experiment, but rather than having the Raleigh mutant, we have the flag K mutant, so a mutant that doesn't have flagella, so it can't move, but still produces the surfactants, and then you have to see, you see the colony really going along. So, so the, the repellent, is it known what, known what exactly is the repellent? No, we don't know exactly why it repels. We know it repels. But you, but you know it's something in the bisurfactant, or yeah, we know it's something because we can isolate it from yeah. from a lipid culture where the bacteria are producing the bisurfactants, and through chromatography, we can isolate it and then uh, soak it in filter papers, and then you can you can see indeed that this is the, the molecule. This molecule is repelling a colony. Right, but but okay. So it's really it's really a little bit of the molecule. It's it's. it's it's not uh, some kind of, um, uh, I'd say, indirect effect. Some kind of physical effect. We don't. We don't think so. Although, you know, when you have two colonies facing each other, well, this this one would argue against that, right? So it, it does seem that it's not. It's not because of consumption of nutrients or or secretion of other waste products uh, that that there's repellent, right? So so it, 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 all the evidence that we have is that, that it is indeed the bisurfactants that that repel the colony. That is a kind of mysterious thing because the biosurfactant covers the whole colony, mm -hmm. and yet you have branches. So some, yes. there must be some cohesive force between bacteria. There, there is. Um, uh, uh, one of them is the bacteria have extracellular pili, so they're like a hair in the bacterial wall. If you knock those out, the branches become a bit thicker. They're still branches, but they become a bit thicker. And if you mix uh, bacteria that don't have pili with bacteria that have pili, the bacteria that don't, don't have pili, they get pushed somewhat to the sides. Right? So there's that thing. Now, th there's another thing that I, I believe keeps the colony tied together, and that, that will come later in the talk, uh, which I believe is just the balance between surface tension and the, and the force that the bacteria are using to propel each other. Pretty much like when you have uh, droplets running down your window when it's raining, uh, there's a balance there between the surface tension and, and, the, and the force of, of, of gravity. Uh, here you have you don't have gravity, but you have the, the, the force of the cells propelling each other. 
and I'll show you a, a experiments later on where we have uh, mutants that do not make these branches. Okay. Do the cheaters themselves branch if you uh, give them enough room? Uh, I would believe so. Uh, actually, we, we have we have some other experiments where where we do see that where we we, we can put them close, very very close together, yeah. which allows them to make separate colonies, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then we do see branching. Yeah. Well, actually, there you, you could call that. A yeah, you can. Yeah, you kind of. Uh, right. You have sort of point, uh, You have yeah. in between, no? So. Okay. Good, so yeah, I'm glad everyone is excited with different questions. There's a lot of questions here that we still need an answer. Uh, so I'll go back to the question that I was talking about, which is uh, what prevents cheating? Uh, so what we did next is a, a mixed uh, wild type with the mutants and spot them in the same colony. So rather than having two separate colonies, we're making a mixed colony and then letting them uh, swarm away. And here is just a, a swap color experiment. So it's a, it's a control experiment where we control for the actual uh, fluorescent color. Okay? So what we see immediately is that when you have a colony that we start half-half, uh, the colony doesn't swarm as far as the colony of the wild type. So this is for the same 24 hours. At this time, if it was a colony made up of only of the wild type, the wild type would have reached to the edge of the plate, and here it's swarm about half, right? So that's... You know, it makes sense, you have half the uh, surfactant producers, is swarm half the way. But then when, what happens is that when we scrape the colony, we counted how many wild type and mutant we had, we were expecting to see more mutant than wild type, right? Because we reasoned that the mutant does not pay a metabolic cost to produce the, the surfactants. So there would be free riders. But we were surprised that we didn't see a difference. So this is the number of, of cells in the colony at the end of, of the competition. And we don't see a statistically significant difference. And the same thing in, in the swap color experiments. So this was uh, somewhat surprising to us because we measured that these bacteria, they produce about 20% of their own biomass in bisurfactants. So 20% is, is a significant chunk, right? But could that be because you knocked out the end of the pathway so that, it had, that the, the cheaters did all the work anyway without... It could, it could be, it could be. You know, that, that's exactly what we were trying to understand. You know, why, why, don't we, why don't we see a fitness cost, right? So it could be that there's some intercellular metabolite that gets accumulated and it's already committed to bisurfactant production, although it's, it's, it's not being transformed into that final. I'm sorry if you said this in the morning. I'm, I'm sorry I was late, but do you know that the ones that produce the biosurfactant on their own have less fitness when they're not in a mixed population than the uh, other No, ones? we didn't know that to start with, right? Yeah. And actually, they, they don't. They have exactly the same fitness, right? But so the question is, how, how are they capable of having exactly the same fitness when they're dedicating 20% of their own biomass into producing bisurfactants. I mean, they might be, you know, the whole issue of cost is really interesting. I have yeah. a colleague who's looking at horned beetles, and they have these enormous horns, and it's been postulated for years that it's costly, which mm -hmm. is why all beetles don't have the horns. But then they thought, well, maybe it's super heavy and they can't fly properly. They put them in wind tunnels. No cost. Mm -hmm. It's massive horn. That's whatever, 50% yeah. of the amount. Yeah, exactly. No cost. They fly fast, everything. Exactly. So, so, so you know, that, that was something, uh, a similar puzzle that, that we had. But the, the nice thing here is that we can dissect it at the molecular level and try to understand exactly why there's no cost. Okay? That's the nice thing about these bacteria. No cost at the level they can measure. Right. That's right. And, but then does that mean that there is a cost? I mean, how do you know what to measure? Most yeah. of the time we just assume there is a cost because we say they're making it. 
but what, yeah. what is the aspect no, of yeah, that, That's an important topic here, right? So my first question is, is maybe there's a small cost, but I can measure it, right? So, so what I did is I, I did consecutive passages, right? So I, did, I took these and I did uh, over four-day passages. So if there's a small cost, it should accumulate over four days. Mm -hmm. But even when I, after I did that, the relative fitness was still indistinguishable from one, right? So I still could not distinguish. I have here plus or minus 0 0.05, which is still a relatively high margin, but you have to compare this with the 20%. So that goes back to your question, small cost compared to what, right? So here we have something to compare with, which is the 20% of their own biomass that they produce in biosurfactant. Do you scrape the entire colony or just the tips? The entire colony. I mean, it'd be interesting to do the tips because maybe there's a variation as you go from the center outwards. It could be, it could be. How yeah. many replicates? How many replicates? We do a lot. We typically do, for everything that I show here, it's always three replicates per day over three days. And so nine replicates total. So it's important, you know, when we do microbiology, also not only to do the replicates in the same day, but also to, to do it in separate days. So on the replicates, the treatment is the same, like, like you start with 50-50, you don't vary the frequency? Well, we also did that, and, and we still found no fitness difference. But I'll go back, I'll go back to that. Yeah, that was my question, if the proportions are just the initial okay. frequency. No, so all of those, I'll go back in a, in a, in a follow-up study later on. Okay, but so here, I just wanted to focus on this very simple question. If the bacteria produce 20% of their own biomass in biosurfactants, why don't we see a cost? Okay, so we started looking at how the bacteria regulates the molecular decision to start producing biosurfactants, because the, <coughs> maybe the, key, the, the answer was there. So what we did is we uh, took the wildlife bacteria and we inserted a reporter fusion uh, uh, with GFP. So it's the promoter for the biosurfactant gene driving the expression of green fluorescent protein. Basically what this means is that the bacteria turn green when they're expressing the, the, the gene. Okay? And then we started investigating this in liquid culture. So now completely mixed to avoid the problem of, of spatial structure. So simplifying the problem and just looking at timing of the expression of, of the biosurfactant genes. So this is, a, this is not on a, on a lagart? Not anymore, no. So, why, so why, now it's in the test tube. Why would they make it? Why would they make the biosurfactants? Yes. Well, you know, if, if you can replicate the microenvironment that they're experiencing in the plate, if you can replicate the exact same microenvironment in a test tube, they should give you the same response. Right? So if you think of the bacteria as, as being... When they are lagar, the reason is, as you said, to, to explore but if you are in a very mixed uh, environment, why why would uh, I mean why would they do it? I mean, you know, what, there must there must be something no, that triggers. The, no, of course I understand. You know what what would be the reason if they always lived in liquid? What would be the reason to to produce biosurfactants? But I, I'm not I'm not addressing that problem here. What I'm doing is I'm creating a microenvironment and looking at their response, right? So I'm, I'm interrogating the bacteria pretty much like, like another black box system, right? So I'm giving it an, in, an input, which is a, a microenvironment, and I'm measuring an output, which is their response. Okay? Are you sure they are producing the, the surfactant in the liquid media? I am, yeah. I can measure it. You can, you can measure yeah, it now. I can, I can measure the bisurfactant secreted. I'm uh, sorry, but where do they regularly live? Uh, this bacteria in the soil. So the soil, but also they can colonize uh, uh, lungs of people, so yeah. then they, they uh, grow in mucoidus. everywhere in soil kind of Soils, mean. also water, streams, mm. yeah. They're environmental microbes, right? Okay. So, so, uh, so this is a, a, a growth curve, right? So like 
many of these, right? So, so here we're looking at optical density as a proxy for cell density. It's in log scale, and this is the black line. So when you see a line, it means they're growing exponentially, and then they're entering stationary phase, okay? The green line is a GFP level, so the expression of our remote synthesis gene, okay? And what we see here is that the bacteria don't express the gene until they start entering stationary phase, right? Until they slow down their growth, okay? And so this already suggests the mechanism for why they're not outcompeted. If the bacteria, when they're growing very, very fast, they're not expressing the gene, that means when they're growing very fast, they're competing on equal grounds with a mutant that doesn't have the gene. Right? The GFP has some maturation time? It does, it doesn't have some maturation. It's half an hour, right? The, this one, it, 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 yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's maturation, there's also the, the dilution, the dilution of the protein, so, so there, there is a slight, slight delay there. Um, so, um, but so what, what this is telling us is that the bacteria, uh, when they're growing fast, they're not, uh, they're competing on equal grounds, right? So then the, reason, the, the, the question then becomes, can, you, can we understand at the molecular level how they tell that they're slowing down and start expressing the gene, right? For what is it, their, their signal, their molecular cue that tells them that, okay? There are many possible explanations. One of them is that they could do this potentially not, not by sensing how they're slowing down, but sensing if they're in, in large enough population numbers, right? So, so microbiologists already knew that this gene was regulated through a process called quorum sensing. I imagine many of you have uh, heard uh, about quorum sensing already. Very briefly, it's the ability uh, for bacterial populations to regulate gene expression in a density-dependent way. They do this by secreting signaling molecules that accumulate in the extracellular space. They can sense back the extracellular concentration of these molecules and use that to regulate gene expression. Okay? So can it be that that is why they, they secrete the liquid medium? Yes. Because of the quorum sensing? Yes, yes. Not only the quorum sensing, and, and, I'll, and I'll explain that, that better. Okay? But so, you know, quorum sensing was known to regulate the, the gene, this gene. So what we did is we took a, a, a mutant that was not capable of producing the quorum sensing signals. Okay? So if we do that, this is a mutant, it has the same type of growth curve, but now you don't, they don't express the, the gene, right? <coughs> and so now we reason, let's try to trick the bacteria into perceiving that they're in a high density environment. So we can buy the quorum sensing signals from sigma, add them to, to the media, and really uh, flood the bacteria with these signals, and try to trick them to perceive that there's a, 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 a high cell density. So, is that uh, GFP curve normalized by uh, cell not yet. No, not yet. No. So, so this is not just because of, or a downslope rather. Uh, but when cell volume stops decreasing, you will get an upslope. So this is not normalized by cell. It's, it's absolutely in the population. Okay. But so, so let's let's go back to the, to this question. So if they're not producing the this, the signals, they're flat. What I reason is that if we flood the system with signals, then the production should become constitutive, right? They should start expressing from the beginning. So we see, what we saw is that when we added the autoinducers, the signals to, to the media, we could uh, reconstitute the, the expression, but we could not avoid the delay, okay? So basically, uh, we reconstitute, uh, quorum sensing is necessary, but it's not sufficient to uh, make the, the production of, of, of the renal lipids constitutive. Okay? So this was telling us that in addition to quorum sensing, there was another system that these bacteria were using. 
Right? So they were integrating information of quantum sensing with something else. Okay? Maybe I missed it, but why, how do we, what says that quorum sensing is even necessary? Well, if you knock out the ability of the bacteria to produce okay, signals, they, they don't right, work. Okay. I missed what that meant. Okay, so then what I started to look at, at nutrients, because already there was literature from chemical engineering looking at, uh, at nutrients in industrial fermentations with these bacteria to, to produce uh, biosurfactants. Uh, and what I did here, so this is a, a growth curve, like I showed you before, this one is, uh, um, the, the 20 one, uh, this is a, we're, we're, what we're doing here is we're varying the level of, of nutrients in the liquid media of case amino acids, which is the main carbon and uh, nitrogen source in the media. It's a, it's a mixed powder that uh, comes from the digest of cassie. Uh, so what is the practical application of the biosurfactant that got the chemical engineers interested? Well, you could use it, for example, uh, in the oil spill in the Gulf to this oil, uh -huh. uh -huh. and then the bacteria would come and degrade the biosurfactant later on. All right. Thank you. So, so, um, so this would be the, the normal growth curve. Now, if you reduce the amount of medium uh, of nutrients in the medium, you anticipate uh, the time at which the bacteria enters stationary phase. And if you give them more nutrients, you delay that. So basically, it's just saying that the, the entry in stationary phase is simply caused by nutrient depletion, okay? Now what we did is also we looked at, at the gene expression for all of these curves, okay? And, and this plot here, let, let's look at this inset here, where I'm plotting cell density, and on the y-axis, I'm, I'm plotting um, the expression of the gene and here it's actually normalized by cell, by cell, okay? So this is just to show, here we don't have time, right? So we're, we're transforming these type of plots into just the cell density and the gene expression. And what this is showing me is that um, if you carry out the, the experiment with less nutrients, they turn on the gene earlier at, at lower cell densities. And if you give them more nutrients, they turn on the gene later. So this is not responding to the paradigm of quorum sensing, right? Where gene expression depends on cell density, right? It's rather telling us that there's some other factor here, right? What we did then, then is we plotted the same gene expression, but now we plotted against the cell growth rate. And now all the curves collapse into one, okay? So this is uh, telling us that what the bacteria are uh, sensing is the speed, the, the rate at which they're growing, okay? Uh, if they're growing very fast, they don't express the gene. As growth starts slowing down, then they ramp up gene expression. Okay? So then, uh, you know, to cut the long story short, we did a, a bunch of other experiments, and this is one that summarizes uh, most of the results, where we manipulated independently the carbon and the nitrogen source in the growth media. Okay? So this is the level of carbon source from low to high. This is the level of nitrogen source from low to high. And, and the points within this matrix are uh, the cell density at 24 hours. So basically this tells us that there's a region here of optimal carbon and nitrogen, optimal for growth. Okay? So it's this region, this red region here. Now if you compare that with the optimal region for maximum gene expression, you see that that's slightly shifted downwards towards lower nitrogen. Okay? And if you do a, a gene expression per cell, then you see it's really, really low nitrogen. Okay? So what this was suggesting is that the bacteria, they, they're really uh, um, sensing a nitrogen limitation, and they express the gene maximally when they're limited by nitrogen. Okay? So this led us to formulate the following uh, conceptual model. 
It just so happens that in the media that microbiologists figure out what's the best for swarming motility, there's a ratio of carbon to nitrogen where there's excess of carbon relative to nitrogen when you compare it to the spikeometry needed to make biomass. Okay? It's, these microbiologists, I, I figure, uh, uh, they, they uh, found it empirically, right? So they, they, they didn't do it rationally, they just tried it and, and they got the conditions good for swarming, okay? So what happens is that when we spot colonies in the swarming plate, at the beginning they have both carbon and nitrogen, so they can grow. But what they do is they grow and they run out of nitrogen before they run out of carbon, okay? During this phase, they're growing maximally at their maximum growth rate, so they have both nitrogen and carbon needed for growth, and they don't express the gene Rowley, which is needed for biosurfactant production, right? So they can grow maximally. They can take up carbon at their maximum growth rate and, and pump it into biomass production, okay? Now then, there comes a time when they run out of nitrogen, they have excess of carbon, and if they, they can sense that, they can use that information to express the, the gene for remote discretion and use the carbon uh, flux to produce bisurfactants which do not require nitrogen in their composition, and they do this uh, at a low expense to their fitness because they're not growing anyway. By nitrogen, you mean N2 or N3 no, no, or what type of nitrogen? No, it's essentially ammonium sulfate in the medium. So we prepare the minimal medium with ammonium sulfate as the sole nitrogen source and uh, glycerol as the sole carbon source. So then this way you can manipulate both independently. Okay? Okay, so this, this mechanism we call uh, metabolic prudence as a mechanism for bacteria to regulate the investment into a public goods in a way that they only make it when they have excess of resources that they're not going to impact their fitness. Okay? Now, interestingly, this last step, this decision-making process of turning on the investment to run lipids, only happens if there's a quorum, as I showed. Right? So we believe there's something interesting here, and, and this is something that we're following up on the lab, in the lab right now, because we believe what the cells are doing is they're, they're integrating information from quorum sensing and metabolic sensing. So they're integrating information about the population. Are we enough numbers to produce lipids to be able to migrate? And as an individual, do I have enough resources to produce this without carrying a cost to my fitness? Okay, so this is something that we're following up. Because although we understand that the nutrients are necessary for this decision, we don't know exactly how that at the molecular level is interacting with, with the molecular process of quorum sensing. Can they use the biosorfactant as nutrient source also? No, they cannot. Not this bacteria. I mean, it's biodegradable. There are other bacteria that degrade it, but not, not so this. So if they don't have a carbon source, they will not use? No, no. They, they, uh, one interesting aspect is that uh, they are also capable of uh, internal storage of carbon in uh, polyhydroxybutyrates. And that is a, a metabolic pathway that competes with lipids. So when they're making this decision, they're not storing, right? So there could be a, 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 an interesting trade-off there. <coughs> there is no feedback from the randolipids. The randolipids could be used as a quorum sensor, basically with positive feedbacks. They could. Uh, we don't see any, any feedback uh, in the gene expression. We, we looked at this in growth curves, in comparing the mutant with the wild-type, and we don't, we don't have any evidence of randolipids influencing the gene expression. Okay. Okay, so let's go back to our uh, competition experiments and, and, and how can we uh, test somewhat that this process of molecular decision making is important to avoid cheating. So what we did is we uh, uh, constructed a, 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 a swarmer that does not make this decision. So it's producing bisurfactants constitutively. So we went to the mutant that doesn't produce bisurfactants, 
we reinsert the gene for biosurfactant production, but now we put it under uh, the regulation of uh, an inducible promoter. So that we, as the experimentalists, can tell the bacteria you have to produce biosurfactants now. Okay? So this mutant is uh, constructed as a PVAD promoter and then the, the, the operon here for production of bisurfactants. And if you don't add the inducer to the medium, this bacterium doesn't swarm. If you add the inducer, it swarms. It's producing bisurfactants all the time. And you see that the morphology is al already a bit different because they're just soaking the, the surface all the time. Okay? Because they're, they're doing what? They're, they're just producing the bisurfactants all the time rather than doing it in a timely uh, uh, way, which is. It's, it's, it seems to be important for the, the proper morphology. What produces the reticulated spots in the lower right, the, the, the sequence of what? These things stuff? here. Yeah. We don't know for sure. We think there's something interesting there that nobody has looked at uh, before, which is they, they, they don't make these things right away. So they first make the tendrils and then they aggregate. So this might be something interesting there. Might be some response. Uh, you know, after they migrated on the entire plate and they uh, consumed all the nutrients, maybe they have some kind of aggregation response similar to Mixococcus. We don't know. I mean, this is no, nobody has looked at this. A little before. like the Keller Siegel equation patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you see, you know, there are many interesting questions on, on these pseudomonas or you know, I think it's a really ripe uh, model system to, to, to uh, full of, of, of exciting questions. Okay, so then what we did is we uh, tested how well this, this uh, strict cooperator, this induced cooperator, fares against the, the, the cheater mutant, right? So uh, this, this panel here is the experiment that I told you about before, where we mix the wild type with the mutants at one-to-one -one ratio, and this is the swap color control experiment, and then we did successive passages to try to see if there's a small fitness difference if it accumulates in the course of four passages, right? So what we do is we strip the whole colony, then we spot the second day, we let them swarm, and we do this over and over again. And the conclusion here is that the ratio always maintained at one-to-one. -one. So the wild type was not outcompeted by, by, the, by the cheater mutant, the potential cheater mutant. Um, but when we do this experiment now with a, with a strict cooperator, we see a different effect, right? So we have now, the, the strict cooperators in green mixed with the mutant in, in red, and over successive passages, it's completely outcompeted, right? So by the end, we have only the cheater, the colony is completely red, and doesn't swarm anymore. Sorry, I, I missed uh, what is the strict cooperator. The strict cooperator is, is, a, is a, a bacterium that we, we engineered that's producing bisurfactants all the time. So it, oh, okay. it likes this, this ability to make a decision, a decision to turn on and off. It's the one that makes the funny patterns. So. Yeah, it's the one that makes the funny yeah. patterns. Yeah. 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 So this is so so if if the if the production of the biosurfactant is constitutive rather than, than through metabolic prudence, they get outcompeted, and this is just a swap uh, color control experiment to show the same thing. So, so isn't it all full of biosurfactant? It is. Why do they shrink? <coughs> well, they, they, they shrink because it's a new plate. Okay, maybe this wasn't really clear. Oh, oh, so what we do is we scrape the whole thing and then we spot the second plate. Oh, okay, them, and we do successive passages. But if you put the strict uh, co cooperator with the wild type, wouldn't the wild type win? Uh, the strict cooperator with the wild type, the wild type wins. Yeah. So there's a cost. There's a cost to produce all the time. And there's no cost to produce it through metabolic, in a regulated way, prudently. Okay. 
Do you know why the why is the morphology of the, the swarming guys different on this slide than on the previous one? Where you, yes. Where you had, uh, so so here you, you have half the cells producing the bisurfactants constitutively, and half the cells not producing bisurfactants, right? So the, the red cells, this is red and green cells, and red cells don't produce bisurfactants, and green cells produce bisurfactants all the time. Okay, so the fact that you have only half the cells producing bisurfactants changes the patterns, right? You don't have as many bisurfactants per, per, produced per cell. So <laughs> you're saying that there's a cost of, of uh, producing bisurfactant all the time. Yeah. So what if you make, uh, if you were to make a cooperator that, that produces, um, in some sense, constitutively the, the biosurfactant, but does so in an oscillatory fashion so that mm -hmm. it doesn't do it all the time. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's interesting, definitely, uh, to, to try. Um, um, yeah, I, I guess it would depend on the frequency of the oscillations, if, if they're doing this. Um, it should it should cost it should cost less, right? Um, it should cost well. It, it, I, I think there's several variables there, right? So you you have to think about are you maintaining the same average production over time throughout the oscillations, and what are the frequency of those oscillations? I think that would be the, the important questions. I mean, if, if you probably if you timed it right so that they're not expressing through the first half of the assay and only expressing the second half of the assay, and if you time it precisely. Then, then you have similar behavior to the wild type because that's what the wild type does. At the beginning, it's not producing the bisurfactants; it only starts producing the bisurfactants when it ran out of nutrients locally. Okay. So if you if the oscillations were you know every 12 hours, then then you'd have something. Well, like you that. just made it tet inducible, and, and 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 you put it whenever you put a drug, you you'd have the. Yeah, yeah. You could test for it like that, or, or or using this one, you could add the inducer only, which here is not that it's uh, uh, L-arabinose. You could add it at a certain time. So yeah, I mean it's an interesting suggestion. Mm. Yeah, uh, the two lower rows should they be the same morphology? Just yes. the colors? Yes. So so there's some difference. Yeah, there, there is a bit of difference, and I, I guess if you did some uh, you know thorough image analysis. Uh, there is, of course, day-to-day -day variabilities. Okay. You know, and, and the swap color experiments is almost like doing something in a different day because you're, even if you do it in the same day, you're doing a completely different set of, of, of bacteria. So, so there's some natural day-to-day -day variability that, that, that we do see. So this, this is the kind of variability that I, I'm not surprised to see. Okay. So let me just uh, summarize what I just said. So this is a, a work that I, I finished already in, in my lab, but I, I started when I was a postdoc with, with Kevin Foster. Uh, so uh, bacteria, they, they rely on multicellular traits uh, for many tasks. Uh, but uh, you know the, the, what comes from, uh, from evolutionary theory is that cooperative traits, especially the costly cooperative traits, are open to exploitation. And therefore, if we do see cooperative traits in bacteria, they have to meet mechanisms to prevent exploitation from happening, right? And uh, by dissecting those with experiments with bacteria, we can, we can look for these and find them, and they can be either physical or biological mechanisms that set population structure, or they can be molecular mechanisms, like the ones that I showed you right now, the mechanism of metabolic prudence, where there's a, a molecular decision-making in the bacteria that um, may be an adaptive trait to avoid exploitation by cheaters, okay?
and, and maybe you said this, but the, the, the mechanism for the branching itself, <coughs> I mean, the purpose of that is to try to get the bacteria uh, out further uh, in a, in a, for at a given metabolic cost by having it go out in columns as opposed to uh, no. a tightly compacted... No, we don't know. We don't know exactly why they do this. And, and actually, you know, given that this is... Um, I'm, I'm going to jump through this a, a second part here where, where we, we... It's basically a follow-up on what I just told you, but uh, we did a more thorough analysis of... We competed the bacteria at different frequencies and we mapped the... the uh, you know the, the, the fitness space more more thoroughly. So so and we use the you know the partition from price equation to try to understand under which conditions of, of relatedness would be would constitutive expression of price factors be selected. Uh, so so I won't go into that uh, because I, I wanted to go to the, to the next type of of, of uh, experiments which are radically different. Okay. So if you need, maybe I could give this uh, next week or so. Uh, if there's time for that. Okay. So I wanted to, to tell you more about these other experiments that are uh, different. Okay, but to address this question that, uh, that David was raising right now about uh, why do we see these, these branches, these, these uh, uh, channels. Okay, so it's going back to um, uh, this question of when you swarm, you make more cells than when you don't swarm. So here we have the hard agar where the bacteria are physically uh, uh, prevented from swarming and make much less cells. Now what we asked is uh, what happens if we submit these to successive passages, right? Are we going to see, which traits are we going to see evolve, okay? I already told you that the bacteria, they need both um, uh, flagella and motility to, to swim, uh, and they need to secrete the biosurfactants. So these are just two examples of traits that are needed for forming motility. And there are other genes also involved. So there are potentially many paths of uh, adaptation if we subject the bacteria to successive passages of this. Pretty much like Richard Lansky did with his E. coli, where he's uh, you know, passaging bacteria from fast to fast for 20 years or so. Uh, and he does with seven independent lineages, here we can make several lineages of this and ask do the bacteria always follow the same evolutionary path, okay? And uh, I already told the answer to some of you, but I imagine that if I had not told anyone what's going to happen, I would probably get as many answers as I have uh, people in this room, right? So just because there are so many different possibilities that this bacteria can, can figure out ways for that, okay? Again, what we're going to do here is we're going to passage these bacteria daily, we're going to spot them in the swarming plate, let them swarm, we're going to scrape the whole colony, so it's not when we're not taking the, the, the tips or the center, and we're mixing it in a tube, and then we're using a subset of that, a, a bottleneck of 1 to 1500, spot them in a fresh plate, watch them swarm away, and do this over and over again for 30 years like the Chaglansky. Or two weeks, which is what we usually do. Okay. Is, there, is there a reason that when you pass from day two to day three, why do you seed with many rather than a single one? Uh, many rather than a single one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what we want, what we wanted to ask here is um, what kind of traits. It is, it is a, an experimental variable. You know, the size of the bottleneck. Uh, you know, if you if you did a, a bottleneck of a single cell. Uh, you'd be very, very stringent. Uh, so it would be, it, it would probably just take much, much longer. I mean, w one of the variables that we do want to change is the size of the bottleneck. I don't think we'll go down to a single cell just because we expect things would take really, really long time. 
but but you know that the population bottleneck sets uh, the effective population size, right? So, so it's just so, technical sort of ease at the moment. Uh, it, it is technical ease. I mean, if we wanted to spot single cells, we probably would have to do serial dilutions. So we end up having many empty plates to ensure that the, the ones that do have bacteria only have a single one. So practically, it would be very hard. Or, or you could have some kind of sophisticated flow cell sorter where you make sure that you print a single cell. So that, that's another possibility. But here, we were not interested in that. We were interested in you know, just, just submitting the population to several rounds of swarming and just see what evolves. Okay? So the first time we tried this, we did three independent lineages. Okay? And we kept um, the intermediate steps. Right, like Richard Lenski calls them the, the fossil record, right? The frozen fossil record here that we can later go and resurrect bacteria. Okay, so let's see. So this is work that uh, uh, my, my postdoc Dave uh, March did. So these are the three independent lineages, and this is the end of day one. So again, we scrape all these cells, we mix them, and we spot the second day. This is the end of day two. Okay, so still looking like normal colonies, just day-to-day -day variability in the shapes. This is day three. Day four, and at day five, you see this middle one starts losing the branches, okay? So we evolved a, a different phenotype, okay? The other ones still look pretty much branchy. Then day six, day seven, day eight, and by day nine, the three independent lineages evolved this uh, uh, phenotype which we call hyperswarming. Okay, so that we don't see the, the branches anymore. Okay. So this is a summary of the experiment. We have you know, all these daily passages, three independent lineages. Uh, then we have a lot of interesting questions that follow up, right? So first of all, is hyperswarming a heritable and stable phenotype? That means, can we go into these plates, isolate single clones that then hyperswarm themselves, okay? Second question, if they are a heritable a phenotype, like, like a stable genetic mutation, um, is it always the same mutation in the independent lineages? Or is it rather an example of convergent evolution where bacteria through different uh, mutations achieve the same uh, microscopic phenotype? What's the dynamics of the growth? So is it branching and then the branches grow? Or is it growing from the center okay. in this like fashion? Yeah, I'll show you in the next slides, okay? So what we did is uh, we, we isolated clones from, from all these plates, and then we did uh, what, what you were just asking, and this is uh, made from a pure clone, right? So it started from a pure clone, we grow it overnight, and then this is uh, how the phenotype looks like. So you see very different. You see these branches start to form, but then they seem to fill, fill in the gaps in between the branches. And this is our hyperswarming phenotype that we evolved uh, de novo in the lab. Okay. Okay, so then the next question was, um, since this is indeed a, a stable heritable phenotype, uh, are they always the same mutation, right? So, so the three independent lineages. And so what we did is we took clones that we isolated from the different plates, and here the colors, they, they mean uh, different plates. So these, these here, they were isolated at day five. So if you look back here at the, at the colors, so these the blue ones were isolated from these plates, and then the magenta, the yellow, the green from those plates there. So, so what we did is we took those clones and we um, we submitted them to a battery of phenotypes that microbiologists traditionally do in the lab. So we measured their swimming motility, which is just preparing agar at 0.3 percent concentration. So now much more wet, and that allows the bacteria to dive through the agar. And then we measured the ring. At a certain time, I believe here it was um, at 12 hours. 
and we compare how uh, you know the, the the area of that ring. Uh, and here we have the wild type, the ancestral strain, and this is a, a negative mutant, so a flat K mutant that doesn't have flagella, so it can swim. And what we see is that all our mutants they swim better than the wild type. But uh, another thing that's interesting is that uh, you see differences, phenotypic differences between between the different mutants isolated from different plates. Okay, which suggests that we have different different mutations. Then here we also measured twitching motility, which is the ability to crawl on plastic. We measured biofilm formation. We saw that all of them form less biofilm than the wild type, and also remnolipids. So here it's just a battery of phenotypes that suggests that we have different mutants. Uh, what we did is because th these phenotypes are all quantitative, we used a hierarchical clustering to group them together. So this is a result of hierarchical clustering. Here, each row is one clone. Each, uh, sorry, each row is one phenotype. Each column is one clone. And we grouped the, the, the phenotypes, and we included in our analysis the ancestral strain and also uh, two motility mutants, uh, the flagella-less mutant and the, the pili-less mutant. Okay? And so this hierarchical clustering is telling us that the, the mutants, they have uh, radically different phenotypes from, from the ancestral and from the motility mutants. Uh, but also that they seem to cluster according to the plate at which they were isolated from. Right? So we have all the yellow ones together, the greens together, the magenta together, with the exception of these two uh, cyan ones, which are the early clones, so the ones that were isolated from day five. So this is suggesting that at day five, the, the, the population was polyclonal, that we had two mutants that then competed for, for uh, dominance of that plate. But then, uh, you know, uh, this suggests that we have, um, you know, perhaps two different types of mutants, maybe three different types of mutants. But so what we did is we took mutants from these different clusters that were convinced that they are different mutants from their phenotypes, and we did whole genome sequencing. Uh, uh, and we did also whole genome sequencing of our ancestral strain, and we compared uh, to find mutations. Okay? So this was the first time that we did something like this, and it's very exciting. Uh, it's a, a kind of a needle in a haystack problem, right? Because you'd expect to have very uh, low number of mutations, right? So the way you do this uh, these days is through next generation sequencing, where you get um, you get all these small reads and you map it to a to a background genome, and then you're looking for you know single nucleotide changes, okay? You have a genome scaffold already to use. We do. Uh, I mean, Pseudomonas originosa PA14, the strain that we work with, is uh, sequenced. But of course, our background has slightly slight differences. You know, when you pass, uh, you know, we got ours from a Roberto Coulter's lab. There's always you know mutations that accumulate whenever you, you you pass strains like this. So that's why we also sequence our, our ancestral. So presumably you will pick up inconsequential mutations as well as ones that actually are... Yeah, yeah. So you have a way of filtering them out? Or? Uh, well, w we didn't care here because what we were comparing was with our ancestral, right? So we, we, of course there might be other mutations uh, relative to the, to the sequenced strain, uh, but, but we don't care about those. We, have, we care about our de novo mutations, right? The ones that happen during our... But even relative to the ancestral, there could be just sort of incidental... There could, there uh, could. Yes, there are no... No, that could, that could, that could, for sure. I mean, that we were open to that possibility. But the answer is we didn't find any of those, right? So we only found single amino acid substitutions in every school clone, right? And where it becomes really, really interesting is that they were all in the same gene. 
right? And we found these two mutations in all those clones that, that we sequenced, those, those five clones. So, so both were single amino acid substitutions, so not loss of function uh, of the gene. They both fell in the same gene. What do you mean both? I thought you had three. Uh, we had, we see, yeah, I mean here, we could have either three clusters or two, if you consider these, these to be the same cluster, okay? I'll show you again later that it's actually two, okay? So there was a parallel evolution in, in a pair of them. Yes. Yes, okay. So in that gene, the gene where these mutations fell is a very interesting gene called FLIAN, and it's a gene that regulates the flagellar number in Pseudomonas originosa. So what this paper from 2002 did is they uh, found, uh, when the genome first came out for, for this strain, they found an open reading frame that they believed was interesting, and they went in and knocked it out, okay? And, uh, and they found that this gene, this open reading frame, uh, eventually, you know, they published other papers, uh, interacts with these two genes, at least, one that regulates uh, you know, the initiation of flagella synthesis, and another one that regulates where the flagella is located in the cells. These bacteria, they only have one polar flagellum. Oh, we don't see it here. But yeah, I mean, these bacteria, they only have one polar flagellum. If you knock out uh, FLIAN, they become uh, polyflagellated, still with uh, flagella in the pole. But what's interesting is if you knock it out, they get polyflagellated, but they can't swim anymore. Okay, so they can't swim, they have too many flagella. Okay? Now in our case, our bacteria, our flea and mutants, are also polyflagellated, but they actually swim better than the wild type. Okay? This is not loss of function mutation. So this is single amino acid substitutions that are actually conferring the ability of these bacteria to become polyflagellated, but not in such a dramatic way that they can't swim anymore. It's in an actually more functional way, we believe, right? Okay. So the flea and there that you're showing in the panel that's from the other paper, that's a null mutation? There is no protein product? I'm assuming. Yeah, no, so they really delete like a large chunk. They, they still leave a, a beginning a, 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 of, of the gene, but they delete... a point mutation. How do you know it's not a loss of function? Uh, well, we, we can discuss that, uh, uh, you know, exactly what it means loss of uh, or gain of, of function here. But it's, it's, not, it's not a deletion of the gene, at least. Or, or it's not a, a frame shift. It's nothing that would indicate, you know, a severe uh, inability to make the protein at all, right? What is the status of, maybe you're going to talk about this now, what is the status of flea and protein and activity in your mutants? Yes. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll show you other things. Uh, I mean, we haven't done, you know, all the, the biochemistry. We, we've done some of it, okay? So, so in your hyperswarmers, they always express precisely three flagella? No, no. Uh, so, so what we found is that in, in our three uh, replicate experiments, we found two types of mutations, right? So this one here in residue 253, and another one in residue 178, right? And all of these, then, you know, once you know the gene, you can just do targeted sequencing. And then we confirm that all of these had this mutation here, and all of these had this mutation here. Okay. Now, what and we did... Only this mutation? They didn't have other mutations? Sorry? They did, we didn't find other mutations in the whole genome sequencing. Okay, but then what we did is once we knew this, we just did many more replicates of our, uh, evolutionary experiments. So we did 24 more, and we always found free N mutations. Okay? So if you do this over and over again, this is very reproducible. You always get flea mutations, okay? And we found flea mutations, not only these two, but others in, in, the, in, in the same gene, right? Always single amino acid substitutions. And like David was saying, there's, there's difference in the level of flagellation, we believe. So not, not all of these give the same number of flagella per cell. We haven't figured out a, 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 a great way to count the exact number of flagella, but what we do is we measure expression of flag, flagellin. 
and there we see differences from, from um, among these mutants. They all overexpress flagellin compared to the wild type, uh, and they, but they do so at different levels. Okay, and if you compete them against each other, they have different, uh, they have fitness differences in, in swarming competition. Okay, there are some that are fitter than others. And actually, this initial experiment where we see at day five there's two mutants, but then at day ten there's only one of them already uh, shows that supports that. Okay. Okay, so again, here we have convergent evolution of, uh, at the molecular level. You can do this in independent lineages, and it seems like the environment here imposes such a, a specific selective pressure that all you need is to buy time until specific mutations fall within this gene, and once the mutations hit there, you have a huge selective advantage right away, right? So, of course, this raises all sorts of interesting questions. So the idea that, that mechanically it would be that the three flagella can plow their way through a more dilute concentration of lubricant, thus filling in the, the uh, arms? It could be. It, it, it could be exactly that. Uh, they definitely swim, seem to swim better. I don't know if they swim more uh, directionally better, right? So if they were, you know, if, if, if sophisticated chemotaxis is important, we don't know if, that's, if they do that better. Okay. But now, you know, just, just, just the next slide is just a simple control. What we did is we, we did allelic replacements. So we took the original ancestral, we make in the lab through molecular cloning the mutation, and we get hyperswarming, and we can do the reverse, and we did this for all types of mutations that, that we got, and we can, uh, we, 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 we're pretty sure that these mutations are necessary and sufficient for the hyperswarming phenomenon. So I guess here, it's not only it's a problem of the swimming, Capability because you also lost the Kentucky inhibition here, right? Because with your hyper uh, swarmer activate, they cover the entire slide, uh, the, the entire plate. Activate, they don't, they, you know, actually at least the, the distance between two branches are very, very small. Here. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, so, you know, what you're asking is exactly how does this change, this phenotypic change at the cellular level, how does that confer a fitness at the, at the colony level, right? A, a, micro, a change in the microscopic phenotype, Because right? you were talking about the uh, swimming or capability or whatever mm -hmm. by changing, by modifying the number of flagella. Mm -hmm. But this presumably doesn't influence anything about what you had, you, you said before, you know, you have this uh, intercommunication and then, you know, you have this branching pattern because there's some communication between branches. Yeah, no, that, that, that's true. I mean, and these colonies still repel each other uh, uh, significantly, right? So if you, if you put these in the same plate, they will, they will still, you will still see some kind of zone of, of inhibition where this one will not cross. But you don't see the, the, the uh, you know, you see some level of branch of branching, right? So you just don't see the, the, the same. But now the question here that we were focusing on is, uh, what confers a fitness advantage to these guys relative to these, right? Because it, it, it's such a reproducible effect that all you need is the mutation to hit there, and then immediately these take over the population, right? So we were asking, why? Why do they take over the population? And, and one of the things that we did is we, we measured growth rate in liquids, and we saw no difference there. We saw, if anything, a smaller, slightly smaller uh, growth rates of the of the clean mutants relatively to the ancestral, right? So, so they're not simply out competing because of faster growth. And these were well stirred uh, yes. liquid cultures. So this is in, in 96 well plates, you know, very hardly shaken. 
and and uh, and then we measure optical density over time, pretty much like the growth curve that I showed. It might do better if we didn't shape. It could be. It could be. I mean, it, it might definitely be important in environments where where swimming towards something yeah. is, is important, right? Okay. Okay. So so then what we did is we we went again to the petri dishes and we used the same type of approach as before. We labeled bacteria with green and, and red. Again, this is a, the plate that I was showing you before. If you mix the wild type in green with the wild type in red, you get a colony that is pretty homogeneous. There's no segregation between green and red. Now, if you do the same thing, but now you have the ancestral uh, and the flea and mutant, uh, and here we mix them at different ratios, you see that the mutant, the, it really localizes it at the leading edge, right? So it's capable of, of, of swimming faster and reach the leading edge, which is the, the, the part that gets prime access to nutrients, right? It's the first one that reaches the fresh nutrient sources. Here I have a you know, mix them at a ratio of, of 1 to 1,000, 1 to 100, this is 1 to 10, and this is 1 to 1. When it's 1 to 1, you don't even see localization because the, the mutant, which is in green, outcompetes the, the wild type so fast that you don't even see the wild type in the background. But this one here at 1 to 10, you can still see the mutant pretty much uh, you know, enriched uh, at, at, at the edge of the colony. You probably remember the cane toads in Australia spreading across the ones at the front have That's the bigger legs. Example. Yeah, so now imagine that the cane toads had three legs. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? And, they, and they evolved like that through a single point mutation. Uh, wow. Okay. Now, so that, that seems to be what's explaining their competitive advantage. Now this, uh, I, I think it's very, very interesting uh, because it's a, a prime example and a very visual and graphic example of the process, the evolutionary process, uh, and of course, you're, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of, uh, you know, controversy about uh, how, is it possible to assemble some, something as, as as complex as as a flagellum, right? So here we have we don't have assembly of a flagellum in a, a, a laboratory experiment, but we have one step of something that resembles this, which is going from one flagella to having poly multiple flagella per single cell. Right, so I think this can be very, very convincing. And I, I'm really convinced that part of the reason why, why uh, uh, natural selection is, is not very well understood is that uh, we don't observe it uh, in, in real time, right? So we, we, the evidence comes, not, comes from the observation of, of species that exist presently in their, in their comparison and comparison with fossil records, and more recently through the analysis of, of, of molecular uh, um, evidences. Uh, I think the experiments that Rich Lansky uh, pioneered are, are great because they really changed the field, allowing us to study evolution in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in, in real time in the lab. But they still uh, look at phenotypes that are difficult to, to explain, right? Like the ability to grow on, on, a, on citrates. Uh, and, so, and so these type of examples, I think, can be very powerful to convey. Uh, in a very graphic way, the evolutionary process. You have, you have a clear phenotypic change that you see uh, in, in the plates themselves, and then if you have an electron microscope, which I, not, not everyone does, you can actually look at the single cell and you can see a, a physical difference in the cells. Okay? This actually I, I, I downloaded yesterday. It comes from, from this UCSD <laughs> uh, website. Uh, there's something apparently here at UCSD called Veritas, which I think is a, a church-inspired <laughs> Uh, organization which uh, discusses relevance of, of, of science uh, and religion. It's .org, it's not .edu, I think. Oh, okay, okay. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I tried to understand exactly what was the connection of this with, with uh, Santa Barbara University, and I couldn't really understand. The website was kind of convoluted. You can ask Boris, he'll, he can explain. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, so, okay, then the question is, if it's so easy for these bacteria to go from having a single flagellum to having multiple flagella, you do it through a single point mutation, and that confers a huge advantage in the laboratory, do we see this in the wild, right? Do we see polyflagellated hyperforming bacteria in the wild? And the answer is no. So what I did here is uh, we, we, we got a library of, of both environmental and clinical isolates uh, of Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and we uh, uh, grew them in swarming assays, and we uh, quantified the, the morphology of the colony. So we have here the, how much of the plate is covered versus how round does the colony look like. Right, so if the colony is, uh, is branchy, you'll have a point in this space here. If the colony doesn't swarm, you'll have something here. And our clinical and environmental isolates, they occupy this area of the, this phenotypic space here. Our ancestral is right here, and our high performers are way out there, here. They can cover a lot of the plates, and the colony looks pretty round. So we didn't see anything that looked anywhere like this in all these clinical and environmental isolates. So the, the question is why? Why don't we see these guys uh, in the wild? And our explanation is that um, these mutants are becoming specialists in a specific phenotype, which is this ability to spread over surfaces. They win the competition, but there's a trade-off uh, in the form of a, of a different phenotype that's also important uh, in the wild, which is biofilm formation, okay? When we had measured that battery of phenotypes, we had already seen that these bacteria are, are poor biofilm formers compared to the wild type. And actually, when you uh, mix them together in a, in a mixed biofilm, so this is the frequency at which we mix them, this is for the ancestral, and this is a, the complementary fitness for, uh, frequency for, for the, the mutant. If you mix them at a certain frequency, when you look at the frequency of bacteria that attach to a solid surface, you see that the ancestrals, uh, that the, the mutants attach much less. And once you let the biofilm grow, you see that the mutants are very underrepresented in the mature biofilm, right? So they're outcompeted in the biofilm. And this is a, a you know, confocal microscopy, and we have here the ancestral labeled in red and the mutant labeled in green, and just to give you a, a better picture of that. So our conclusion is that we don't see this in nature because it's, it's coming up as, as a trade-off to, to other phenotypes that are important. So what happens if you take the multiple flagella away as one of the solutions? So like if you make the flagella like uh, either paralyzed or something like that? Uh, if you just have a flagella but it's not moving? Or like a slow beating flagella, and so you take away the flagella. I don't know exactly how to do this. But yeah. Well, so, so if they don't have flagella at all, they don't form good biofilms. Yes. So they need, they need a flagella at least to, we believe, attach at the beginning at the surface, and then there's a transition from being temporarily attached to being permanently attached, where they lose the flagella and then they start producing extracellular polymeric substances and, and so on. So if you don't have flagella at all, they don't do this. If they have a flagella but it's beating slowly, we don't know. Nobody has ever looked. What we do know, and this is not published yet, but it's um, uh, from, from a group in, in uh, Washington University, is um, if you evolve biofilms over a long term, you know, if you just let, let a biofilm grow and you just uh, flush media through it and just look at which mutations start accumulating there, you see a lot of mutants without flagella. So if, they have, if the mutation arises within, the, within the, the biofilm, that seems to be advantages. 
Okay. Okay, so in conclusion, uh, we saw that repeated rounds of swarming select for hyperformers, and this is you know, convergent molecular evolution. We see single amino acid substitutions in the flagellar synthesis regulator, and I, I don't have any other example of so clear convergent evolution. I, I, I've looked very hard. There's a very neat example from Peter Adolfato, uh, uh, ecologist at Princeton, that looked at uh, parallel evolution <coughs> in herbivore insects that adapt to eating poisonous uh, uh, plants, and they seem to have parallel evolutions in the same bacteria. You have a suggestion? Almost did. Bobosti did a very similar experiment where he, he grew bacteria in a gradient with the antibiotic. Antibiotics. Yeah. And he sees exactly a very quick evolution of, uh, of uh, resistance yeah. exactly with mutation in exactly the same gene. No, that's true. That's true. My, no, guess, my guess the difference between these experiments and Belensky's is that here you have bacteria that invade new niche. Mm -hmm. If you have bacteria that invade new niche, and they don't have to, don't have to outcompete the ancestor, or to uh, uh, the, the, to, to, have to fix the, the, the gene in the population. You, the, the message seems to be that you develop very quickly uh, mutation, adaptive mutations, and the mutations are, are are selected always to the same gene. So I think these experiments are really fascinating because they could they could actually be a way for evolution to actually be reproducible and not some kind of random thing that as everybody seems to mm -hmm. be. So I think that experiments where, where you couple niche invasion or, or niche, niche selection invasion. with, uh, with uh, uh, evolution is, is really fascinating because that could explain convergent evolution. Okay. You and Bob Austin have observed. Okay. No, uh, so, so definitely, you know, f first of all, the, the case of Bob Austin's experiments, uh, yeah, I, I think one case where you do see convergent evolution is when you have drugs, right? And, and you have specific molecular targets for those drugs, so you would expect those molecular targets to, to mutate, right? And this is probably what happens in many instances of, of antibiotic resistance. Well, but you could, you, you, even in antibiotic resistance, you, 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 you could uh, mutate different things. You could overexpress uh, the, 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 the purification network. You could, you, you, if, if the drug attacks the ribosome, you could mutate the, the, the site at which you attack. So yeah, yeah, no, definitely. definitely. There, there are different, different paths where you could achieve that, that resistance. That, that's true. Yeah, I was just saying that, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe you know, when the, when the case is adapting to the presence of a specific molecule that is targeting a, a, a molecular process, maybe it's easier to get, like, or more expected to get convergent evolution. But, but, but like you're saying, there, there are possible, possible more experiments where, where, where you have this type of niche invasion and, uh, and a couple of niche invasion or, or, or Special special selection with evolution to see whether you, yeah. you you develop always convergent evolution. Okay. You have some good examples of that, of exactly what that he is talking about from some different fish. There are cave fish that have independently colonized different caves. Mm -hmm. When you live in a cave after a while, you lose all your pigment, you go blind. All these convergent traits. So mm -hmm. everything lives. Crustaceans, the bugs, the spiders, the fish, the yeah. birds, everything lives in the cave, they're all blind and white. Yeah. And yeah. in the fish, you have parallel evolution at the same locus. There are different mutations, different specific mutations, but always the same locus. Okay. You have stickleback independent colonization of freshwater for marine habitats. Over and over again, they lose bony structures by parallel evolution at the same locus. Mm -hmm. So there's some other examples just from different kingdoms that are finding the same thing you find going to natural populations. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. It's common thing, yeah. Okay. Great. I guess the question then is, can we uh, find what separates conditions that lead to convergent evolution and conditions that you would not expect convergent evolution? If you have, 
if you have to outcompete a big population and to have, to have the genes fixed in a big population, you would not have uh, convergent evolution because there are many ways the gene can fix and make so, so, disappear. So basically, it means it, it, the difference might be displacing a population, a closely related population that is well, already well, there. You have to displace a population, you can, or you can evolve outside of the population. If you can evolve outside of the population, you may it will be easier to. Uh, to go, to go to a fixed point that is that is advantageous. Uh, okay. Well, the genome can offer many solutions sometimes. It depends on how many solutions exist in the genome. So if you have parallel pathways and stuff, and each of them can give you a similar phenotype, then I think you can make <coughs> many different uh, genotypic changes. Well, that's the interesting thing about these fish examples. There's lots of ways to be albino, but only this one way. I mean, it was only two examples, right? The N is always very small. But there's a million different ways that the, that the fish could have become albino and lost their eyes, but they didn't choose a million different ways. Mm -hmm. There was just these two ways. It probably means that there is a uh, difference in the way uh, mutation rate of that gene or uh, fitness advantage over. There, we have no data to support any of those yeah. things. So uh, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. At least from animals, I don't think we have enough. We don't have enough data to answer that question. I agree, it's a very interesting question. It'd be great to know what condition are there conditions that favor one over the other? Yeah. Or are we just seeing we have so so few examples? But with yeah. this model system you can get much better statistics. Right, and exactly. And so yeah. Very powerful. Yeah. yeah. How easy is it to get back to the similar like thing? So if you put this back in natural environment or something? Well, I think it should be easy because you know we have a single amino acid substitution, so it should should be able to revert back. So as could it be an overall thing that the single switch has evolved in a longer time uh, scale to make these more flexible? It could be. It could be. I mean, um, uh, so uh, I think that the next thing would be to look at the frequency of these mutations in in the in the wild. Because they might be there, but at slow, at small frequency, right? And that would suggest that maybe there's something that benefits the population to have a small number of, of bacteria that are mutating towards this phenotype. But you know, we haven't analyzed this thoroughly. But if we just do back up the envelope calculations on, on the on the rate of mutation, this fits very well with the with a with the typical rate of mutations that we expect bacteria to, to have, right? So that doesn't seem to be uh, you know. Higher than usual. So, if you keep these mutants, if you keep them going, do you ever lose the mutation while keeping the phenotype? Um, we haven't seen that. Um, so, just keep them going for more passages and see if eventually you have a hypersomer phenotype, but without the mutation. Yes. No, we we haven't done that. So, meaning if there would be other ways to achieve that mutation that would allow them to, to embed. No. So, what we did is, is we did many replicate uh, experiments. So, we know that at least to invade the ancestral, you need this mutation, right? Or at least 24 hours, 24 times they did it. Right, so, right. The, the, there are some fly experiments from the 50s in, in, in which a phenotype was selected for and then it was kept, I think it was resistant to ether, and, and the, they kept the flies. Uh, under this selective pressure, and they lost the original mutations while, keep, while keeping the phenotype, and they call that canalization. Canalization. So that's what I was curious what whether this would happen here. So we don't know, but again, you know, like like David was saying, you know, these type of experiments are, are, are really easy, and they really provide a model system to try to to answer these things in maybe order of magnitudes faster than flies. Uh, I think it would, might be interesting just to go back and see whether the hyperswarmers evolve faster 
uh, by uh, scraping off the, the outer rim, right. as I said, <laughs> because then you know you're, you're, the, the passage would be enriched. Yeah. So we would expect that. Go in two days instead of five days. Right? Yeah. So definitely we would expect that. I, you know, I think this now gives us a model system to address all sorts of questions. Right? We can change the population bottleneck and see if it matches with predictions. We can increase the mutation rates. Uh, you know, by knocking out DNA repair uh, uh, systems or, or by adding mutagens. Um, sort of different question about the biofilm. It looked like uh, the mutants grew in these filaments. Is there some that special, or is that just how they? That grow? is special. That, that actually, the, this biofilm that I showed, this specific mutant is one that we only saw one time. And in addition to the hypersonar phenotype, it also has a slight cell division. Uh, uh, defect. So they, uh, the bacteria they tend to form these stringy things. But that's just in one of the mutations there. Okay? So we. the cost then for the fidelity? That's the question. So if you're not finding these in natural populations, it suggests there's a cost in natural environments to have a true fidelity. So I wonder what that cost might be. If the cost is in the cell division? Yeah. Uh, we don't know. Uh, we don't know. Yeah, it could be the burden of producing more flagella, it could be the energy expended in turning several flagella, or it could be some, something else, some polytropic effect, like, like a problem in cell division. So we don't know. To the problem, I missed the point. Do you have any explanation why this green label bacteria population is, you know, outcompete here? Uh, I mean, do they have problem on attachment, or do they have problem on cell division? Well, they definitely have a problem in attachment. They can have a problem in cell division on top of that, but definitely in attachment they do. So this is this experiment is done in a few hours, you know, one hour, one hour to one hour and a half. So what we do is we mix the bacteria at a certain ratio, we let them attach to a glass slide, and we immediately look at the glass slide in the microscope. So their cell division is not so important, right? And what we see is that they attach much much less. So they have that to begin with, but then they could have other things like but cell division. Did you say that the growth rate was? Was as good as the, on liquid. Um, you mean uh, if if when I grow them in liquid, both the ancestral and the, and the wild type, do they grow? Do they have the same type of growth curve? Yeah. Or, or are you saying? No, I mean, that, uh, because you are saying that maybe they have a problem with division, but I think that you said that the hyperstromers grew as well in liquid. Uh, they, they they grow slightly worse in uh, liquid. But they still form these stringy things. So if these, these specific bacterium, I mean, this is only one of the hyperswarmers. All the other ones don't form these stringy things. Mm. But, <clears throat> but these still form the stringy things. You know, this, this stringy mutant, we're, we're also very interested in it. Because actually, it, it's, it's very unusual, so we don't get it that, that often. But this one actually is the one that outcompetes all the other ones. So it has also this uh, small fraction of cells become very, very long. And that, for some reason, confers them extra selective advantage. Are they not expressing the flagella? Or if so, how do they squeeze in between these linked cells? Uh, what we believe is that it's only a small fraction of, of the cells that end up being making these string, stringy things. Most of them, they're, they're still single cells, and they still have the multiple flagella and, and stream better. We don't know how the stringy things end up help, help, helping the whole population stream better. So your hyperswarms are essentially are, are, are good cheaters but poor cooperators. So uh, maybe you just there's no need to really expect them to see them in, in natural population unless you really can sample either a lot of natural populations or all the cells in the natural populations because they they might be there all the time but at the low frequency. 
So it, it wouldn't be so easy if you just uh, take do a bulk assay. No, exactly. I mean, uh, what we saw is that we didn't see in, in, in bulk assays if we take isolates, right? So we didn't see them. But you know, I, I think this goes back to the question that he had already asked. They, they might still be there at a very, very low frequency. That, that's true. Yeah. But, you know, our, our, uh, the, way, the way I started this explanation is that uh, we see that they have a huge selective advantage in these swarming motility assays. So you are asking, you know, will, will we also see them abundantly in the wild? So uh, if this same selective advantage is also high in the wild, and the answer is no. We don't expect them to have the same strong selective advantage, possibly because they form much less biofilm, right? So they, they, they would be very bad in the wild. So what do you expect that if you do like experiments on liquid, mm -hmm. doing the same experiments, but so some, so supposedly there, there could be some other mutation for an advantage on liquid being instead of water, or I know for getting into the oxygen gradient mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. So, would you expect to have like? Also no, I would expect to have something completely different. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, but, but the same kind of so convergent evolution. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, we, we don't know. That's exactly the, the question, right? So, if you impose different selective pressures, do you still uh, expect convergent evolution? I I don't think so. Uh, and then the question becomes, what distinguishes an environment where you can expect convergent evolution from an environment where you don't expect it? So, so I think that's that's a main biological question. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to wrap this up um, uh, just by uh, telling you a bit about the, the general directions that, that we're going. Uh, we're very interested in continuing exploring what seems like a trade-off between biofilm formation and motility. This is something that other labs have been looking at, that uh, in pseudomonosorginosa there seems to be a switch that tells them either move on surface or start building your biofilm. And uh, especially in the context of, 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 of biomedicine, is there a way to exploit this to develop new therapies against biofilm-forming bacteria? You know, because the biofilms, are, you know, the biofilm formation is actually what the clinical problem is about. You know, these bacteria attach to surfaces, and then they make these strong biofilms, and they're very difficult to get rid of. What's happening in our experiments is that we're having this, we're applying selective pressure for greater motility. That is selecting for these flea and mutants that have, are highly motile, but they are bad at biofilm formation. So is there any way that we can turn that into a therapeutic strategy, right? Where we can uh, funnel uh, selective pressure so that uh, we uh, nudge the bacteria into evolving hypermotility that then would be very bad at biofilm formation. Okay. The general theme of the lab uh, is that we uh, want to find common principles about how cells interact with each other. Uh, and not only in, in bacteria, we use that as our prime model system, but also in other populations, and uh, most notably in, in cancer biology. And we also have some pro projects in cancer biology. I believe that this is actually a, a, a new frontier for uh, systems biology, uh, to understand this next level of biological organization. Not only the processes that happen inside cells, that is you know, the tr traditional focus of, of molecular systems biology, but now when you have a population of cells and they share information with each other, how does that lead to collective decision making? And I believe that will come from the uh, um, intersection of these three fields, molecular biology, evolutionary theory, but also the study of, of collective behavior. There's a you know, strong uh, um, theoretical uh, uh, body of, of work already on, on how uh, we can have emergent properties, for example, from collective animal behavior. Okay. 
Uh, one example of that uh, is uh, whether we can find design, design principles of how cells interact with each other, so kind of interaction motifs. Uh, for example, quorum sensing that I told you about um, is the ability to secrete a signaling molecule and the ability to sense the extracellular concentration of that molecule. So if you, if you have a cell that is capable of doing that, that cell is now capable of uh, responding to changes in, in population density. Right? And uh, interestingly, we, find, we can find examples of quorum sensing uh, in different types of bacterial species even through completely independent molecular processes, so using completely unrelated uh, uh, molecular mechanisms. The gram-negatives, they tend to use these almost serine lactons. Gram-positives tend to use uh, peptides. Um, but they apparently converge to the same solution. Uh, we also have examples in tissue morphogenesis, where you have uh, uh, you know, secretion of, of molecules that can accumulate in a density-dependent way that can tell you when to branch, for example. In the immune system, you have similar uh, uh, processes with cytokines. And there's also examples now um, in, uh, in, in cancer, where similar processes like this might have a role in cancer progression. Right, so this is just one example. I believe there might be other uh, um, uh, design principles of cell interactions that we can abstract, right? That will be valid, valid for different types of, of cell populations. Uh, just to give you some example of how we're applying such concepts to cancer biology, uh, with, a, with a student of mine, uh, Will Chang, we're looking at the collective uh, cancer migration in very abstract models inspired by self-propelled particles, where we're looking at interaction between cancer cells and stromal cells. Uh, we're investigating this in the context of uh, tumor-associated macrophages, which are macrophages that are uh, recruited to the side of, of tumor, and they get subverted by the cancer into participating in the invasiveness program of, of, of uh, a cancer. And, uh, and uh, a postdoc in our institute, Carlos Carmona Fontaine, and actually he talked about uh, Carlos's work yesterday. He's the one who did the, collect, the contact inhibition work with uh, Roberto Mayor. Uh, he's now in our lab and he's looking at um, in vitro models of uh, cancer stromal interactions and how those are important for collective migration. Okay, so we still have 20 minutes. I, I would be happy to stop here and let people leave early, or if you prefer, you can go back to the price equation and, and talk a bit about it. What do you think? I don't want to be burning. I can let people leave, people who want to leave, or, and I could continue. Shall I continue? Okay. Oops. So I'll, I'll go a bit, a bit back here. And you can go to the bit on, on price equation. So, so this goes back to the problem of, of um, uh, production of biosurfactants and whether non-biosurfactant producers can exploit the biosurfactants of others. And this we can also use as a model system to understand uh, different levels of selection. Uh, so uh, I took the, uh, you know, we, we uh, took, took this project and, and um, uh, together with these two students, what we did is we uh, uh, tried to map uh, the, the fitness benefits of producing more biosurfactants. So here we have uh, colonies that we grew at different levels of the, the L-arabinose inducer. So this is the, the, the bacteria that if you add more L-arabinose, they will produce more biosurfactants. 
and uh, they, therefore they will swarm more. But if you add too much L albinos, they produce too many, much virus surfactants, and that ends up having a, a, a cost that is very burdening. So there's an intermediate <laughs> level of, of induction where they produce virus surfactants just enough that they can swarm throughout the whole plate, but not so much that they, that, that start, starts harming. But the conclusion here is that uh, uh, you know, cooperative secretion of biosurfactants is definitely uh, provides a group level benefit. You know, you produce biosurfactants, you, you start benefiting the whole population and you spread more. Okay? So this is a colony of, of biosurfactant producers. We call them the cooperators. Uh, they, can, they can swarm. Uh, if you, you can have defectors, which are bacteria that don't produce biosurfactants at all. So, so uh, they, swarm, they don't swarm at all and they make much less cells. So definitely there's a group benefit of, of doing this. Now, uh, then we can mix them, like I showed you in mixed colonies, cooperators versus defectors, and we can mix them at different ratios, right? So here we had, uh, uh, you know, 10% uh, cooperators in our population. Here we had 99% cooperators. And what we can do is we can take these, we can scrape the, the cells, and then uh, measure uh, the change in cooperator proportion. So this is the initial ratio at which we mix, and we can measure the final, and then calculate the, the change in gene frequency, which quantifies uh, natural selection. Uh, and then we can also uh, quantify the, the, the productivity. How, how well did the colony as a whole did? And, and the, the label cooperator and defector, what does it mean again? Cooperator means biosurfactant producer. That's all it means. That's all it means. Okay. Biosurfactant means non-producer. This terminology is a little, you know, <clears throat> makes you think in a certain way mm -hmm. when you say cooperator and defector, which mm -hmm. may not necessarily be the, yeah. you know, the right way to think about it. Okay. I mean, yeah. So, so we can continue, and then, and then, you know, after this, you can tell me if, if you think it's still correct. But, uh, but here, so you know, to be more strict, what these are is these are isogenic mutants, uh, and one lacks the gene for biosurfactant secretion. The other one has the gene, but it's uh, constitutively expressed, right? So we have this inducer to the medium to force them to express the gene all the time. I'm not sure if somebody else already asked it. If you sample the spots mm -hmm. and the area with low dense cell density, would you expect difference? Uh, here we don't find differences. So we did these things and we didn't find any differences. I mean, we, we, we didn't find any difference throughout the whole population, right? So, so you know, the fact that you're producing bisurfactants or not doesn't seem to be important to the spatial localization in the colony. Okay. So, but this gives us a model system to quantify certain things. You know. So here, you know, in these plots, we have the initial proportion at which we mixed the two cell types, and here we have the change in the proportion in the colony. So if that change in proportion is negative, like it is here, that means that the cooperators, you know, please bear in mind my definitions, are being outcompeted in, within colony competitions. This one here shows the productivity. How well did the colony as a whole do for the same type of mixing proportions? And what this tells us is that the colony does better the more cooperators you have, but then you have a kind of a diminishing returns where it seems to level off and eventually even slightly decrease. Okay? So this is showing that uh, although these cooperators would be benefit, would be uh, um, would be favored by group level selection, they would be disfavored by individual level selection, by competition within the colony. Okay?
How do you fit this? How do you measure it? Yeah, so the fitting, um, I used actually a, a, a model, a mathematical model, uh, and it was based on uh, you know, competitive dynamics between cooperators and defectors, and they're competing for the same nutrient. So, uh, you know, the actual model doesn't explicitly um, uh, assume spatial structure. It basically assumes that there's a nutrient, and the initial amount of nutrient available depends on the fraction of, of producers. So, if you mix producers, for example, at 50 50, that means the colony will be able to spread, and that means that, that colony will have more nutrient available to it. Okay? And then basically we compete, you know, the two uh, cell types compete for that amount of nutrient that is set by the proportion of which the cooperators are, are mixed. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't see where fitness comes in. Where, where is the fitness? It's the exponent of the growth? Well, where the, this, this is actual absolute numbers of, of the cells in yeah. the population. So the fitness would be uh, the, the initial, uh, the final D divided by the initial D. Right, so so you, you you basically assume that there's an initial amount of cooperators and defectors. You let them compete until they run out of nutrients, and then you quantify the final D, and that would give you the, the, the fitness. Okay. It's not the logarithm of that. No, it's just the ratio. Mm. Well, as quantified by here. Take the log. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I am plotting the log. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But so, so we use this model to fit so that we can interpolate the, the data. The actual shaded area uh, is just from bootstrapping error, error margins. Uh, but we also use this data, the, the same model, to uh, uh, look at competitions that we uh, conducted at different levels of, of cooperative secretion, right? of, of secretion of biosurfactants. So this is uh, a lot of, of biosurfactants, the green line. This is intermediary, and then this is low. And uh, if you force them to produce more biosurfactants, the, the cooperators are, are more disfavored, and if you force them to produce less, actually if you, if you put zero inducer in the medium, there's still leaky expression of, of the biosurfactants, and that leaky expression is conferring them a slight direct advantage to cooperators. But on the other hand, this leaky expression is not enough for them to swarm a lot, so the colony productivity doesn't increase that much. Okay, but this was the same exact model was used to fit all, all, all these data, right? And, and these are the parameters that we obtained, but that's basically telling us that, uh, you know, what we already knew from the biochemistry, that if you add more inducer, you're decreasing the yield at which the, the cooperators can produce more biomass, right? So you're forcing them to, to divert part of their carbon flux into producing these biosurfactants. So of course, the, the whatever they have left to produce biomass uh, is, 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 is going to be less, okay? Okay, so then... Um, What's the reason for this um, cooperator getting an advantage when they secrete only For itself? We don't know. You're asking why is this yeah. above zero? Yeah. That we don't know. We only see it empirically. Uh, and I'll, I'll show you another example where this also happens. We still don't know mechanistically why, why it's happening. Oh, wait, you have a prediction. I mean, the, the, the continuous curve, I guess, is from your model. No. Yes, yes, the continuous curve is, is a, a model fits. It's a fit. So, so you have this parameter, which is which is the, the yield, and actually, as you see here, that this the, the pink bar is giving you a yield that is slightly higher than one, which means that the bacteria are actually producing more biomass than you purely expect. So, so that's because they are actually they have a direct advantage to their to their own. So, so the yield in your in your equation depends on albinos, etc. 
they, YC, the parameter YC and YD? Yes, they depend on the amount of, 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 of L-arabinose. Yeah. Because the L-arabinose uh, is, is inducing, is forcing the bacteria to produce more biosurfactants. There, there were more is questions? The, yes, so is the uh, biosurfactant in the whole population per uh, unit of mass uh, constant, maybe? No. So that would explain, that could have explained that uh, if you have more production, then you need less producers and then they could be. No, exactly, exactly. That, that's exactly but it. But you don't see that. No, that, that, that's exactly it, right? So, so if you, for example, here you, in the blue line, you're forcing them to produce a lot of biosurfactants. And uh, so to have the same level, for example, to have the same level as in the green bar, you need less amount of producers, yeah. right? So, so, so yeah, I guess I mean, that's, that answers why the red line is very good. Okay. Yeah, no. So, so I mean, I, I know this is kind of trivial. It's just saying it matches our expectations, right? So, but what we saw is that, and also, you know, we wanted to make this very, very simple because in the in microbiology literature, there's there's um, uh, many people looking at uh, uh, what we call microbial social traits, but microbiologists traditionally take for granted microbial sociality based purely on arguments of group level selection. So they say, okay, the bacteria uh, produce this biosurfactant because that benefits the whole population without asking critically whether at the individual level is this trait going to be selected. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, I, I understand for many of us this might be very, very obvious, but you should understand that the, 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 the literature in microbiology is filled with examples of people taking for granted group level uh, traits, okay? So I wanted to show here very, very clearly that you have an example of a trait that's can confer an advantage of the group, but at the individual level is selected against. Okay? So then the question is, uh, uh, can we find intermediary situations, right, where you have, uh, you know, relatedness uh, enough for a, gr a group level trait that is costly to the individual but benefits the group to be selected for? And of course, uh, You've probably seen things like this before, which was firstly introduced by, by Hamilton, but you have you know, a global population that has a certain frequency of cooperators, here the green part, and the factors, the red, and then it's split into subpopulations, but there's some, some uh, stochastic sampling of this global population, right? So you have a, a, the average of all these populations would give you this frequency, but now each individual population has slight variations on that. And that will uh, then produce a, a multi-level selection um, uh, type of situation where the populations, the subpopulations that got more cooperators purely by chance will be more productive. So cooperators will lose locally in every subpopulation, but as a whole, they might be actually end up winning. So the first set of arrows is just showing how to to split the population, your, to partition, yeah. The population. The second set is actually a selective Co competition, yeah. So, so a round of swarming in, in my case. And then the third set of arrows is just aggregating everything together. Okay, makes sense. Okay. This is Simpson's paradox. Yeah. So, so there's even a paper from from uh, Stan Ladler's group where they, you know, really call this Simpson's paradox. It's a principle from statistics where you can have a global trend that uh, that inverts a local trend. Okay. Uh, so, so this, of course, can be very well described uh, by uh, price equation. Now, the interesting thing is that when you look at price equation, you see that all you need to understand multi-level selection are these three uh, quantities. First, you need to know the change in cooperator proportion in each colony as a function of the mixing, mixing proportion. So you need to know this function here, how delta pi depends on pi, okay? You need to know, point number two, 
how does the uh, colony fitness depend on the, the uh, proportion of, of cooperators in that colony, the WIPI. And then the third thing that you need to know is a distribution. So the, the uh, probability density function of these PIs. If you know these three things, you, you know multi-level selection. Okay? So now these points number one and number two, we already measured empirically, right? So these are our curves here. So this is the, the function of how delta PI changes as a function of PI, right? And this is how the fitness changes as a function of PI. So we already have points one and two. So what can we do about point number three, which is the mixing proportion? So now here we're going to address this purely uh, theoretically, right? Once we have our, our functions already calibrated, our model, we can ask theoretically what would be the conditions of partitioning of a global population into subpopulations that would favor a cooperative trait. And here we assume basically that the, the distribution will, will follow the, the, the following uh, principles. That the, uh, the log of the ratio of cooperators over defectors follows a normal distribution. Basically that the ratio of cooperators over the factors follow a long normal distribution. Okay, so this is just a simple theoretical construct that allows us a, 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 a tool that using a single probability distribution function and by changing uh, the standard deviation of, of this normal distribution, we can go from a situation where you have um, a very low uh, 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 spread in your in your uh, sampling of the global population, which means very high relatedness, and this, uh, sorry, very low relatedness, and a situation where you have a very strong spread in the sampling, which means very high relatedness. Okay, so this is all theoretical, but then we can apply that to our theoretical model, uh, properly calibrated with the experiments, and ask. Under which conditions of, of the spread of the probability distribution function do we start favoring cooperators? Okay, and this is what this line here represents, and we found that there's a value very close to sigma uh, one where uh, cooperators start to be favored favored by um, uh, multi-level selection. Okay, and there's there's a corresponding value of relatedness, so you can convert uh, our sigma to to uh, value of relatedness relatedness just using this expression here. These uh, points here, they're actually uh, calculations that we made directly from our data. So we took all the experiments that we had uh, executed so far and we resampled data points from there that would allow us to, to, to uh, calculate what would be a global population, a global change in, in the uh, proportion of, of cooperators uh, in a global population. Okay. So then we can also ask, so this is for, uh, uh, these uh, simulations here were all done for a global pop, uh, proportion of cooperators of 0.5. We can also do this for a range of global uh, cooperator proportions ranging from 0 to 1. Uh, and here we're also varying uh, the spread of the population. So this would be, this would mean low relatedness and this would mean very high relatedness. And it's just showing that, uh, you know, according to theory, uh, uh, swarming cooperation, costly swarming cooperation would be disfavored and at low relatedness, but then start to be favored at high relatedness. And the crossover point at which um, you can have cooperators going up to fixation is this very, very high sigma of 4.2. So for four decades, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the spread of this, of this um, uh, uh, ratio of cooperators versus defectors. So well, you need what, what's the related, I mean the relatedness in your experiment should be very high actually, wouldn't it? I mean you have two populations that are clonal. 
Well, the, the relatedness, um, uh, the coefficient of, re of, of relatedness, which is uh, you know, the one that's traditionally used in, in case selection here, is an experimental variable that we can vary. And it's basically varied by, by uh, varying the mixing proportion between both. Okay, so relatedness here doesn't mean um, uh, com complete uh, similarity of all genomes. It means um, uh, the um, the likelihood that a cooperator will benefit another cooperator. Okay. So this is kind of related to the density of uh, 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 one one phase into the other, one cooperators into the non-cooperators, or vice versa. It does, yeah. It does. It is a measure of, of, of how the two cell types mix, basically, right? So, uh, counterintuitive that uh, on the right side, low global initial cooperator proportions lead to an increase. So the curves, the green curve, for example. This no green. here, here, here. Yeah, yeah. So you start with low yeah. initial proportion, but they expand. Yeah, whereas you start high and no, that's true. So that happens because of the diminishing returns that we saw before. Okay, because there's in order for cooperators to increase in frequency, there has to be you know this this slope here has to be very strong. As as cooperators start to be very abundant, you know the, the, the selective pressure to have more cooperators flat, flattens out, and actually then even decreases slightly. Okay. And that formula for relatedness is that from some paper? I'm just trying to because there is well, it, it's mean minus uh, mean squared in the middle. Yeah, this this is in, in several papers. I can show you mm -hmm. um, that code. It's not really relatedness. That's what you're trying to say. It's oh. a measure of. Proximity or something? Or yeah, it's 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 basically a, a measure of assortment, genetic assortment. If you have if you have a, a, a population, a global population that has a certain proportion of cooperators, when you subdivide that, how is it likely that you're you're segregating the, the genotypes into pure pure colonies, right? If if the colonies were all pure, if they were all founded by single cells, relatedness would be one. Uh, if they're not founded by single cells, but there's a bias that's Cooperators will tend to be with other cooperators, then relatedness is still high. Now, if there's no bias at all, then relatedness is zero, right? If the, if the, if all uh, uh, um, subpopulations have exactly the same proportion as the global population, then relatedness is zero. Okay. Okay. So you know these these uh, calculations show that indeed uh, the costly swarming, the one that is induced. Could could be favored, but it would require very high relatedness. Okay, so in, in actual nature, you know these bacteria they live in the wild and they're mixed with other cell types and there's you know significant mutation rates in bacterial populations. So we wouldn't expect relatedness to be extremely high. Uh, how can swarming motility be stable in nature? So I already told you about uh, metabolic prudence and the fact that the actual wild type, Pseudomonas originosa, is not producing biosurfactants all the time, but rather uses this, this mechanism of, of genetic regulation to produce it only when it, when it comes at a low cost to their fitness. Now if we take this wild type and we do the same type of experiments competing it against a, a, a non-producer mutant, the curve is very, very different. And actually you see that there's always an, an advantage of the cooperator to itself. So even in within colony competitions, the cooperator is slightly favored, okay? And this is a uh, corresponding 
curve of colony fitness as a proportion of the cooperators. And you see it's, it's increasing uh, you know, much more steadily than the previous one without any indication, well, with very little indication of diminishing returns. Okay, so it's a different uh, within col uh, colony uh, uh, fitness landscape. Do you have any data on relatedness of colonies in the wild? No, it's very hard. I mean, uh, you know, how would we talk about relatedness in, in the wild for this type of bacteria? Um, I mean, in, in the end, my, my perspective is that this abstraction of looking at the selective pressure on, on a single allele is, is really a, a theoretical abstraction. That in the wild, you know, you'll have selection acting on, on, on all sorts of alleles, right? So, so it's very, very difficult to, to map exactly how, how this problem would, would, would happen in the wild. This is, a, this is a, basically a, a, an experimental tool to try to understand under which conditions would you expect cooperative behavior to, to, um, to be favored. You know, how, how this can be applied in the actual realistic settings, I think, still remains to be, uh, to be determined. The reason Especially I ask is because you start with this premise that it seems unlikely that forming motility would be stable in nature, although you know you can see it in the lab, because you expect relatedness um, to be low mm -hmm. in the wild. But when Owen Wilson was here, he talked about the basically starting from the same premise in Gilbert Wilson, whatever, in... Um, Gilbert. Yeah. In, uh, in diffustelium, and it was the exact same type of reasoning, we expect that in the wild they're doing their thing and they come together and be fruiting bodies, but they're not going to be particularly related in a fruiting body, but yeah. it turns out they are. Oh, in the wild. In the wild. In the wild. So you exactly. can get fruiting bodies in the wild. Right. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if we have data for, for this guy. Well, we know that um, uh, in cystic fibrosis infections that there is diversity. Uh, definitely. I, I don't think anyone put a number to it, but uh, um, there, there, you know, in a single patient there will be several mm -hmm. clones. Yeah, I mean, in Owen's thing, it's on this order, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8. Okay. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. It was unexpected. No, I, I think it's an interesting question. Just try to put a number here, in, you know, in, in the lungs of a cystic fibrosis patient. We do know that there's a diversity of clones, but we don't know if it's still 0.84. Mm -hmm. I think you know this, this here. This spread is is very very extreme. You need you know very significant uh, uh, process segregating cells to have you know something like this for decades. Um, just rephrasing Cassandra's question, actually. So to make it uh, make sense of it in the system which you're studying, instead of relatedness, is it possible to um, somehow quantify the assortative? of the nature, like the nature of a certain, like the interaction strength, strengths between two cooperators and a cooperator and a defector. You mean uh, in the wild? No, so for example, just right, right here, so that you can get some measurements for the data which you already have. So an interaction strength, which could be the, because that's that's the assortment parameter, right? Because how many, how, what's, how frequently do, for example, cooperators interact with each other rather than cooperators with the defector? Uh, you mean in the actual colony as it spreads? Exactly. So here we're assuming that w once they found the colony, they're all interacting with each other. That there's no spatial structure uh, saying that they're uh, interacting preferentially with each other. But now we're finding this is this is also probably not a valid uh, assumption because you know this this. Um, advantage here is very difficult to explain, yeah. assuming that the colony is completely homogeneous, right? right? So, so, so far we have been um, uh, not addressing that problem at all by assuming that the colony is completely that there's we know there's spatial structure, but we're assuming that it's not important. 
but now we're seeing that there might be some importance. There might be some pro professional interaction between cooperators, or they're helping themselves, yeah. right? Okay, so this is just show, okay, if you have metabolic prudence, you have uh, selection even within colonies, and if you add uh, uh, multi-level selection, that's even strengthened even more. So this is, um, uh, you know, here I'm mapping the, the parameters that we uh, obtained from feeding our model. This is how much the colony can grow, and this is the, the yields. And, and, and this is the yield of biomass production, right? And, and, and here is uh, the values that we obtained for the induced cooperator, which, uh, you know, if, they, if we don't induce them at all, uh, the, the colony doesn't expand that much, but the, the, the bacteria, they, they have a high yield. But if you induce them more, the colony can expand more, but eventually that starts harming them. And this is where the wildlife sits in this uh, phenotypic space. So uh, it's, it's the only one that allows for high expansion and high yields. Okay? And if you add multi-level selection on top of that, of course you see that this strengthens the, the selective pressure even more. Okay? So just to conclude everything, uh, we saw that swarming cooperation is favored at the group level, but that doesn't mean that it's favored at the individual level. And this is you know, just highlighting, especially for the uh, microbiology literature, that uh, because the trait provides a group level benefit, it doesn't mean that it's uh, always selected. Okay? And uh, we suggest that by using uh, price equation and partitioning, you just need to, all you need to do is define those three uh, steps that I told you about, uh, defining the, the delta P function, the uh, WI function, and uh, you know, your, your partitioning, and you can quantify uh, multi-level selection. And then we saw that uh, quantitative swarming is only possible at extremely high relatedness, which is uh, unlikely. And uh, we expect that metabolic prudence really stabilizes that. Okay, well, thank you very much. We, we should stop. <laughs>